welcome to Is It My ADHD, the podcast about what it really feels like to have attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. I'm Grace Timothy and I'm a writer and I wasn't diagnosed with ADHD until I was 37. I'd struggled with traits I now know to be ADHD all my life, but it wasn't until a routine hearing appointment with a doctor who happened to have ADHD himself that these traits were pieced together and it was suggested that I get referred for an assessment. Had it not been for that random moment with an audiologist, I'd still be undiagnosed now and still struggling, just like the two million women thought to have undiagnosed ADHD in the UK today. I want to better understand what ADHD feels like for women and non-binary people, in whom ADHD is so often missed, thanks to the fact that the diagnostic criteria and research is all heavily skewed to the white male case study. I've therefore spoken to some incredible women about how ADHD affects their lives, exploring everything from friendship and work to dating and self-esteem. I've also pulled in some experts along the way to help us tackle the big questions from you and from my guests. Is it my ADHD when I ghost old friends, for example? Is it my ADHD when I break the photocopier at work? And is it my ADHD when I share nudes on Instagram? My hope is that we can spread awareness of ADHD in women and non-binary people and that you'll find some comfort in knowing you're far from being alone. Because with the right support, we can be truly amazing. Today, we're exploring how ADHD impacts motherhood with my guest, Dr. Pragya Agarwal. When I first started investigating ADHD, as yet undiagnosed, motherhood was the one area in which I failed to see any positives and instead felt like I'd never been able to be the parent my daughter deserved. The creeping self-doubt suddenly a certainty in the black and white print of every academic paper I read. Parenting can highlight the ADHD impairments you might have spent years covering. I mean, you try covering anything once you've had one hour's sleep in a week and your tits have just exploded in the supermarket's bread aisle. My impairments haven't necessarily affected the way I experience motherhood. I didn't experience postnatal depression, for example. My memory hasn't been as problematic. And actually, motherhood has forced me to take better care of myself. But when my daughter, who was born in 2012, was very little, I found that while I was doing a good job with her, my capacity for dealing with anything outside of that role had substantially dwindled, leaving me feeling anxious, frustrated and not enough. When I had to step out of this glorious bubble to, you know, earn some money, the world was louder, the feedback was constant and I found my social impairments were more acute than ever, probably aggravated by a lack of sleep as much as the hormonal roller coaster and all the emotions of it. I also have a habit of oversharing quite graphic home truths, which rarely goes down well at baby groups. I've never been so aware of my penchant for the inappropriate and my inability to keep my mouth shut until I'm in the 12th scout hut with eight first-time mums and a baby sing teacher. ADHD means a lot of dysregulation, energy, focus, mood, patience, and we're reliant on stimulation. Children provide plenty, but parenting also involves a lot of monotony. Parents with ADHD can struggle with working memory impairment, planning, social communication, feelings of inadequacy, guilt, self-loathing, low self-esteem, anxiety and overwhelm. Reading up on ADHD, it seems it's common to fluctuate between harsh and lax parenting styles. And there is also a higher instance of postnatal depression. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Pragya Agarwal. A behaviour and data scientist, Pragya is also a journalist, professor, TED speaker, a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts and the director of research think tank 50% Project addressing gender bias and running unconscious bias training workshops and talks for organisations and sexism workshops in schools. She's also an author 
most recently of Motherhood on the Choices of Being a Woman, a memoir that takes in the wider political, scientific and historical contexts for our understanding of womanhood, fertility and motherhood. She was diagnosed with ADHD in 2021 and I'm interested to explore what she feels this has meant for her role as a mother to three children. Welcome, Pragya. It's so amazing to speak to you. I just recently finished the book, so I'm a little bit starstruck. <laughs> One of the most interesting things I sort of stopped on and kept rereading and rereading um, in your book was where you were talking about being bilingual and speaking in Hindi slows you down. I thought that was incredible because obviously with ADHD, there's a tendency to we rush what we speak. Everything's at a sort of higher pace than everyone else. Do you sort of see a link now between those two things, do you think? Ah, Thank you, Grace. So, so lovely to be here. And thank you for inviting me on this. I don't really know. It's really interesting because I feel like I'm kind of newly discovering things about myself. Also things that I used to think were quite wrong about me or broken or flawed are now being, I can maybe explain them through this diagnosis. But yes, I think uh, bilingualism uh, or speaking in different languages has been interesting because I maybe take more care when I'm speaking in Hindi, perhaps also because I'm speaking with people who don't are not as fluent with Hindi. So I'm trying to speak to my younger children who don't know Hindi at all. And I'm now I'm getting really worried and anxious that they don't know anything about Hindi or my culture. So I'm trying to speak in Hindi with them. So I would slow down. Or I would say things in a very rather simplistic manner rather than in a very a fast manner, which I would use when I'm speaking in English because they understand it. So maybe I'm taking more care and maybe I'm deliberating more when I'm speaking. So I feel like maybe there is not that immediate connection between my thoughts and my language anymore when I speak in Hindi because I'm not used to speaking in that anymore. So it's really interesting to think about it like that. Did that because I know obviously um, you were learning English as a child. Did, did that switch? Was there a point at which, you know, you may have been slower with English and then at some point from, from living here, presumably, you made a switch between the two? It might have happened earlier in my life because we were, whole education was in English. We were encouraged to speak English all the time. I was, of course, speaking Hindi at home with my parents mostly and with my relatives and with the immediate extended family. But yes, of course, coming here and speaking in English all the time to people, communicating in English academically, professionally, personally as well at home because my husband does not know a word of Hindi except what he's picked up from Indian restaurant menus. <laughs> so uh, he can say aloo and all those things, dal, but he can't really speak Hindi, which <laughs> I do tell him off quite a bit for that. So, yes, perhaps it, there must have been a switch when I just lost the ability to think in Hindi even. So even I was thinking mm. in English all the time. How do you think your ADHD may have impacted your role as parent, first of all. What you said was really interesting about how hyperstimulation and how it's monotonous, but also exaggerated stimulation all the time. So I do think that I'm slowly now beginning to acknowledge that at times I feel very overwhelmed and at times I need to step away. Otherwise, I will lose my temper or I will have a panic attack or I will feel really anxious. And I think before 
I used to feel like that's a sign of being a bad mother or a bad parent that I need to step away or to say, actually, I can't handle this situation right now. This is too difficult for me or I'm getting overwhelmed and I would keep on persevering. And inevitably, what would happen is either I would lose my temper or it would affect my mental and physical health a lot. So I do think that now I have become more aware of that and perhaps I find it easier to say, I need some help right now. I cannot handle this right now. That is compounded with the diagnosis, but also the awareness that actually there is no definition of being a perfect mother. There's also, you can step away and you can say, I'm finding things difficult and that is okay as well. So I think it's a combination of both those things. Yeah, I think that the patience thing seems to be like almost the founding tenant of being a good parent, I think, on either side, whether you're a mother or father, but probably particularly as a mother and as a woman, right, in in most spheres, patience is a virtue, as they say. Yeah. <laughs> and I totally, I, that resonates with me. I, I, that's the thing I struggle with most. And like you say, it's it's the sense of overwhelm that trying to force patience in a situation where, you know, not many people would be patient in that situation. Do you know what I mean? If there's a if there's a screaming child or there's something that's very frustrating and difficult to overcome. I know that your approach has been child-led. How do you think that has sort of either been boosted and, and supported by your ADHD or, you know, what sort of obstacles do you think it might have created? I feel like I've been mothering for most of my life because I may became a mother quite young first and I was a single parent for a while. So I felt like I learned on the job. <laughs> I didn't really have any kind of expectations. I did want to put my child at the center of it, their well-being and their interest. But I, I do think that over time, as I was a single parent and I was dealing with all those pressures of work and personal lives, I went through infertility struggles as well, hormonal changes, not being able to know why I'm getting so overwhelmed, uh, not being able to say that it's difficult for me, not being able to say I cannot do this, not being able to say actually this is just impossible or not being able to say this is difficult, a tricky situation for me was, uh, was difficult for both me and my daughter because I don't think I handled it best at, at certain points in life. I think I've learned a lot through that experience and I do think now I have perhaps it's a sign of growing older <laughs> or because I have help with my husband now more I find it easier to say that actually I'm going to put the child at the center but my I am as important as well my well-being is also important right now my interests my hobbies my career all those things are also important so I think that has made me happier as a parent. And I, when I do mother, I'm bringing my whole self to it as well. And also I think realizing that children are completely different, no matter they're twins. So my, <laughs> they're five-year-olds, they're twins, but they're so absolutely different. So I have to find strategies to parent them in completely different ways. They need, the needs, desires, interests are completely different. And one of them we suspect might have ADHD, but also other neurodivergence. So that has also helped me research more and find out more about the kind of support they need at this. And maybe that's made me more patience, but maybe that's given me more kind of an incentive for my parenting to be child-led. So it's, it's both been a challenge and both been an opportunity, I think, to know myself and to know my children better. I mean, and that's all... 
any of us can want, particularly with child-led parenting, isn't it, is to, is to understand where things are coming from. In terms of, obviously, it's, it's your daughter's story, so not to, not to go into too much detail, but in terms of when you received your diagnosis, and obviously there's a lot of research about the, being a genetic link between parents to their children with ADHD, was that something that you immediately kind of had a light bulb moment thinking about maybe your, your children's behaviour? I don't want to, yes, I don't want to go into too much detail with that. But I think why I did had the diagnosis in the first, first place was spurred on by noticing my child and thinking about the behaviors that I was noticing, but also the behaviors I'd noticed in my older child, but I hadn't even realized, I thought that maybe there is a link. But as you know, ADHD and autism in girls is very different to how it's projected in boys. And there hasn't been that much awareness in the past. That kind of prompted me to actually look into it more and think about it more and to research it even more. And these conversations I started with other people who are being diagnosed led to it. So it was kind of a two-way thing. It, it, it has helped me parent her better. Her expressions have also helped me in my in my behaviour and diagnosis as well. Mm. And gosh, what a help to her if she explores, you know, what that means for her to have a parent who understands it so well. You're obviously an incredibly tenacious, imaginative and fearless writer. <laughs> oh, thank you. I think uh, reading your book from an ADHD perspective, I can see its appeal. I can see its appeal across the board, obviously, but but particularly someone with ADHD reading it because of the, the various different kind of contexts that you explore. It's just constant firing of inspiring, interesting things. Have you have you found that sort of sense of sharing, maybe oversharing sometimes? Have you found that? How does that sit within your your sort of motherhood experience? That's an interesting one, isn't it? So I used to be a really private person. So I had these really, really clear, strict boundaries about I I never didn't talk about what was happening at home. I would never, even if I I was having problems, I was struggling. So I went through all the IVF cycles and I didn't even tell my mother about it. And and I didn't tell anybody that I was doing it. I just felt it was such a personal, intimate thing. But I think I realized that, as I've said before, If you don't talk about these things, we can often feel so alone that we are the only ones going through it. We are the only ones experiencing it. That can cause shame, stigma, that can cause a lot of um, impact on our mental health as well because we are keeping things too close. So I think I have become more open about sharing things. But even when writing this book, I was really conscious that it is my story that I'm telling and I won't write anything that my children would read in a few years time that is impinging on their privacy in a big way. So I was just telling my story. I didn't want to tell anybody else's story. So even with my older daughter or my husband or my twins, I said things that I knew that it's okay for them to know kind of thing. It's okay that they would read it. It's not something that they would come back and say, oh, I didn't know this and I found it out from your book. So I think even when we write memoir or even when we share things, I have to be conscious about what I'm sharing and how I'm sharing it. How much of it is my story and how much of it is their story that I'm not allowed to tell. I'm so excited to announce that this podcast is sponsored by the first makeup brand I ever bought as a teenager, Benefit Cosmetics. I saved up for Benetint for weeks and that love remained strong when I became a beauty editor years later. 
Roller Lash is my absolute favourite mascara of all time. Gimme Brow Plus and Precisely My Brow are my go-to brow products and I still use Benetint on the daily. Makeup is something I reach for to give myself a moment to ground, to breathe and be in my own thoughts for a minute. Just like my own personal form of meditation that happens to help make me feel fierce. Benefit has remained a mainstay in my own routine for more reasons than one. I love the way Benefit connects customers with amazing causes and today is amplifying various voices around neurodivergence. I'll be working with Benefit, not just on the podcast, but they've also asked me to explore how the Benefit counter experience can be more accessible to those with brains a bit like mine. I'll be sharing the ways we're working together and would love to hear your thoughts on this too. I still can't believe I'm launching Is It My ADHD with my OG beauty obsession at the heart. I think it's interesting because obviously that's your book has has opened up the conversation as well around any kind of stigma and shame relating to motherhood and where that comes from and the kind of patriarchal system that it's that allows that to thrive. Um, but it's sort of interesting that perhaps ADHD exacerbates, would you say, that sense of self-doubt and, and low self-esteem? It could be a, a manifestation of ADHD. Yes, as I said, I'm still I'm very new to this and I'm researching what is because of that or what is just because we have been in, ingrained all these societal messages and pressures and internalize them and say, this is what my role is. This is what I I should be like. This is what how I should be behaving. And, and society judges women for their behavior and their emotions all the time. I mean, uh, if there are certain behaviors that are expected and accepted in men, but are not in women. And so we can internalize these messages. We can say, oh, actually, I shouldn't get angry. Women as you said before, women are supposed to be more patient, nurturing, maternal, kinder, all those kind of softer, passive, more passive roles, um, more kind of, um, yeah, so those masculine and feminine traits are so strongly laid into our society. And I think I'm trying to do that with my girls to say, actually, you don't have to conform to these roles. It's okay to show emotion. If you're angry, it's okay to show anger. We can learn about how we manage that anger and how we express and what do we do about it? But it's not unhealthy to show anger. It's not unhealthy to have a meltdown if you really want it. Because why should we hold these emotions back? And I think um, that could be one of the things that perhaps women struggle with more and why they mask those behaviors more because we are told from a young age that we shouldn't be showing those kind of very extreme emotions. And so we don't. We learn to keep them in. And that creates added anxiety about holding those emotions in, trying to appear to be a good girl and trying to not uh, break those gender boundaries. So I do think that the societal pressures and expectations really create this cycle where women, first of all, try and internalize this, believe that this is how they we are supposed to think of anything that doesn't conform to that as as transgressive or as e- extreme or as as unacceptable. We carry the shame of being too angry or too much or too emotional. And I, I do think that now I'm becoming more aware of that, about how all through my life, the notion that you're too emotional has really been a burden to carry. That's so true. And actually, the emotions of 
I think, or the demands of motherhood make it far harder to mask those emotions. I mean, I'm sure whether you're neurotypical, neurodivergent, you know, I, I think across the board it's a struggle, isn't it? But perhaps more so if you have ADHD. Are we just playing a daily game of is it the patriarchy? <laughs> is it ADHD? Is it sleep deprivation? <laughs> you know, these things in combination. I think like ADHD, I realised all of my traits are the things that I have felt most shameful of and seen as failings of womanhood or rather I was failing at womanhood. I think it's really interesting to frame it that way and look at like how unattractive those traits are. I say that in air quotes, obviously. <laughs> I love them. Yeah. <laughs> Even focusing so hard on your work to the exclusion of all other, you know, elements in your life. Yeah, I think I've had to learn or adapt my behavior to that because I know that I cannot work for half, even half an hour solid, especially during lockdown. They were always at home. I didn't have half an hour to write or anything. And I'm, I have things in my head and I can't even th hear myself think sometimes. And I think that is probably part of ADHD where I, the noise becomes too overwhelming, too many, much sensory overload. As a sidebar, I need to often have subtitles on my television programs because I just can't focus on what's going on, too many things. Yeah, so it's been tricky. Yeah, I've become better at saying I am actually just thinking, I just need five minutes or just need two minutes. Often they don't understand that. So then I have to think, yes, I have to prioritize them and their story right now. Often they would say, mommy, you're not even listening right now. And that causes guilt and extra pressure. Like, oh, my gosh. Mm. I think also it's, again, going back to kind of the standards set by society is that, that when you have that moment where you realize that motherhood isn't about the sort of clean Formica worktop with a freshly baked apple pie on it. That's not necessarily the moment that's going to kind of steer your child to where you need them to be and where they need to be. Is a breakthrough, isn't it? Particularly, I, I, I totally feel you on the mess. Is I just for ages, I think probably because my mum was very tidy and very good at all the cleaning stuff that had to be done. And, you know, and my dad also contributed to that massively that I felt like if I'm not staying on top of that, that's that's very much part of my role as a mother. And I think when you just slightly let go of that, <laughs> some hygiene has to remain. But yeah, do you feel, looking back at, at your life as a parent, do you feel that, that ever the demands of motherhood kind of threatened the balance that you'd managed to achieve as someone with ADHD? Yeah, plenty of time. I don't think I had a bel balance <laughs> or I didn't realize. I mean, I don't think I had a good balance at all. And I, I, isn't it what we're trying to achieve every day anyway? Some days are more balanced than others. Some days I feel like I'm really on top of things and I've achieved a good balance. But some days it's just not that. Because I did not give space to feelings and behaviors and emotions that I thought were not acceptable, I did not set very clear boundaries for my work and my life and my personal life. And I did not prioritize myself at certain instances. I did not understand why I was acting in this way. For instance, like talk, just talking about the messy house, I think, yes, my, my mother was very tidy for her being house proud was a big thing. I always thought that was something that you have to aspire for as a parent, but as a woman, I think more like it. You get a label messy from a early childhood and that kind of stays with you and sticks with you and something you feel really ashamed about. It's like, why can't I just do a normal thing of keeping this house completely under control, which should be 
come, come naturally to me. And so if I carry that shame and you constantly try to overcompensate for that because you're feeling that shame about it. So you're constantly trying to do it and you fall apart and you're unable to keep on top of it. And so that eats into other kind of parts of your life that you should be prioritizing at that moment. And so the balance just falls apart. It's just constantly stacking cards which are falling apart. I just think I have to own that label and I have to say, actually, that's fine. That's my label. I don't have to feel ashamed about it. And that's just one example. But I, th I don't think we ever, I mean, the whole idea of the being completely in control and in balance is, is a myth. We can never be like that. And I think we shouldn't aspire to it because it doesn't work like that. And you're very right. Children will remember different things. Children remember the time you spent with them. Children remember. But I also have to acknowledge that different children have different needs. Like one of my twins has this desperate need for everything to be really tidy and clean and spelling nice. And, and she struggles <laughs> with everything around her if it's messy. So I have to make sure that she gets what she wants as well somehow. So, okay, when it, when it comes to teaching your daughters to question the norm... And I think as two women who have, you know, experienced the kind of rough end of the norms being something that perhaps we've struggled to to stick to. How, how do you teach that in young women? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think it's a it's a very interesting question and a very important one. We have to start very young. We have to start from birth, really, because we see these norms enforced on them from the moment children are born, from the clothes that they they have to wear or the clothes that are available in shops, from the toys, from the media, from books. Everything is creating these gender norms in a implicit manner or explicit manner. And I know that research has shown that even parents respond to girls and boys in different ways about how they are more caring or treat girls as more softer and uh, allow boys to be more roughhouse or to play more aggressively. And, and there's a number of research things that I've covered in my book and the one that's coming next as well. So gender socialization is a huge problem. And we might think that we are raising our children in a very kind of a gender neutral manner by bringing books and media, but they get these messages from their friends and from their teachers, from their carers everywhere. Children have this tendency to associate themselves with their groups that they belong to. So before the age of three or before they start going to nursery, their immediate pressure of peer group is just the parents and immediate siblings and, and grandparents or whoever they see on a regular basis. But this slowly, the circle of influence expands. And so we have to be so conscious and we have to question these ourselves. And I think the first step is for us to question our biases, to question our prejudices and these kind of these gender inequality biases or norms that we might have internalized because we don't question them. We might have been brought up in a certain way. We might have... I've, I've thought that this is just what how things should be. Girls will be girls or boys will be boys. It's such a harmful ma message. And so we have to, as parents, carers, educators, we have to start questioning these from the moment our children are born or from the moment we start looking after our children. By questioning our implicit biases, we make sure that we don't give out these messages in words and actions to children because they are absorbing these messages from around them all the time. So... First of all, we do that. And then secondly, if we actively question these ourselves, like for instance, I remember a couple of years, three years ago, we were watching Peppa Pig and Papa Pig 
said, oh, this, my T-shirt has turned pink, my football shirt, so I can't wear it. And so I had to actively say to my children, listen, act- pink is not a color that boys can't wear. You know that pink is just a color anybody can wear. And I have to repeat this message. And at times it's, it seems like I'm kind of saying the same thing again and again, but to reinforce these messages that they're getting from media and books, we have to say that again and again, to say that actually not just boys have lo- short hair or girls have long hair. This is not a sign of demarcation. I have to remind my children quite a lot. I, I was laughing a few days ago because I made a PowerPoint of all the messages who had long hair for my children to look at and all the girls who had short hair because a couple of years or a year ago they said oh um, this is a boy because he has short hair and so I had to question that so uh, <laughs> and um, and things like um, I, I bought, they got a book from the school which showed that uh, there was a boy who was an adventure and we know that from research that often boys are shown having adventures they are more protagonists who are boys in children's books than girls so we swap pronouns sometimes we swap character pronouns even for animals to make sure that they don't believe that girls have a subsidiary role and boys play a certain role there was a book which showed that this boy who went on adventures was rescuing these girls and and these girls were shown in a way kind of being quite helpless and so I had to actively counter that I had to speak to their teacher it is so deeply embedded in our society and so ingrained that you have to you just feel like you have to question all the things Um, there's an excellent book called gender swapped fairy tales which which has been really great to read to my children because you realize how much these gender norms are embedded in the stories that we are telling our children and the stories we are reading to our children. So I think uh, once you start questioning and challenging mm-hmm. it, they see that actually these norms don't exist. We try and model it in our household. So we try and say that this is not a man's work or a woman's work. It's, it's just a work that anybody can do. So I'm questioning them Mm. and challenging them in front of them actively and explicitly all the time. So they learn that there is no, these masculine, feminine ideas that they pick up from outside are just a social construct. This is not something that's based in biology or this is not based in the fact that men and women have different kinds of brains or anything like that. These are the behaviors we pick up and these are the behaviors we start conforming to. I also make sure that we don't use words such as you're being difficult because that is a word that is often used with girls that you're being difficult if you show emotions or if you're if you insist on your opinion or if you say what you mean you're not allowed to express your opinion and i don't want them to grow up like that i am very conscious of the words or language we use around them as well and i question the words and language that is used in schools uh, in their school if anything like that comes to my notice so i think we we have to first Mm make sure that we are doing that because this is what they're going to see. We have to model these behaviors as well. And then they learn to question. And it's a constant, consistent work that we have to mm. do. And I suppose actually, as well as gender norms, uh, you know, the same conversation can be had around neurodivergence and and the sort of neurotypical norms that we're supposed to kind of abide by. Is that is that something that sort of comes up in, in the same breath sometimes? Absolutely. And I don't like the term neurotypical for instance, because Mm -hmm. what is typical? Why do we have this template for what's normal and what's typical? And why are certain behaviors, emotions are considered to be divergent? Yes, we should be aware Mm -hmm. that, okay, these are certain behaviors that are associated with ADHD or 
autism or is autism spectrum disorder. But I do think that we have to redefine these ideas of what is divergent behavior, because those can be harmful words to use as well, because others people that consider them, make them feel like they're not the norm, they're not normal. So it's a it's a tricky mm-hmm. conversation. While we want awareness of these, while we want us to own these labels and to 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 say yes i have this that means that some of my behaviors and emotions can be affected we don't want to kind of make them feel like they fall outside these boundaries of what's expected and accepted behavior in a society and emotions in a society. So yeah, we know that emotional dysregulation is one of the mm-hmm. things, but is this because we consider certain emotions to be the norm and we consider certain emotionalities and emotions to not be the norm? I think it's a bigger conversation we need to have around the words, language, and how these templates in the scientific domain are set as well, these parameters. I think it's, it's funny, isn't it? My, my daughter will observe other people's behaviour and kind of report back sometimes because she's. I think she's just trying to work out well, again, what is acceptable, what isn't acceptable, that kind of... And I and I totally get that. I don't think until I had been diagnosed that I would have known to say, other than, you know, oh, that's interesting, I wouldn't have known to say, well, that person might have been really struggling with something that day. And do you know what I mean? And, and to kind of try and advocate for the other person as well, I would have maybe just sort of, I mean, just conform to those expectations of how a child should behave. And I think also I find on a, on a personal level, I find meltdowns and that kind of stuff which we don't have as much now you know my daughter's nine but I find that stuff really triggering and I don't know if it's a noise because I'm unable to filter quite a lot of the time but oh my goodness it's really really a struggle to go you know understand where this comes from try and remember the strategies to cope and and to pass on to teach her how to cope you know I it's 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 a struggle it's I, I completely. And now I can see that, that when they were babies, because they had colic and they re, silent reflux, they were crying nonstop for hours. And I remember my husband could just deal with it and just get on with it while I found it impossible. I found it intolerable when they cried. I just couldn't cope with it. And I thought maybe that's just being a mother or whatever, or maybe I was acutely sensitive to it. But it is. Hypersensitivity is a big thing. And I I completely agree. Meltdowns can be triggering because while I'm trying to be patient and to give them the support they need, I'm also struggling with my emotions and my sensitivity to that noise and the way that my emotions are playing havoc at that point as well. So I think it's such a tricky thing to do as a parent to be able to do that i think oh thank you so so much for joining me today it's been a completely and as i knew it would be an enlightening conversation and i'm very empowering because i think to to hear someone who has such a good grasp and understanding of how it impacts things and and how you know a change can be made is just incredibly helpful so thank you so much Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for having me. As I said, I'm not. I'm still learning and finding out more. I'm not an expert in any way. So it's really nice to have a conversation. And the more stories we hear, the more empowered we feel. We now turn to an expert. Today, it's Dr. Mohammed Abdelghani. He is a lead consultant psychiatrist specializing in adult ADHD. And so I'm so thrilled to have him here today 
to decipher. Is it my ADHD when I fall asleep playing Lego with my kids? This can definitely be ADHD. So if we look at playing Lego, it can be quite stimulating, but at the same time, it can be quite boring. I don't know why I got the impression that this is happening at the end of the day. People who's ADHD, they get tired very frequently at the end of the day. They, uh, a lot of them report having something like energy crash by the end of the day. Playing Lego with the kid can be quite boring for some adults. And people who's ADHD, if you combine all of these things together, that they're quite tired, they had an exhausted day, they were trying to maneuver a lot of moving parts in their day, and then they're doing something that can be seen or can be perceived as slightly boring, they can fall asleep or drift their attention completely while doing this. It's worth mentioning here that people who's ADHD, they frequently have sleep problems. So their sleep pattern is not a very uh, regulated one and this might mean that they sometimes struggle to fall asleep they can fall asleep while uh, doing certain activities that's not very stimulating so yes this might be adhd falling asleep while playing lego with a kid thank you so much for joining me and this community of amazing people we'd love it if you could follow is it my adhd wherever you get your podcast from and now i'd love to hear from you What other perspectives would you like to see explored in future episodes? Find me on Instagram at isitmyadhd to continue the conversation.